Hi, this is Bill Woods again up in Sun Valley, Arizona. I want to <clears throat> been having a hard time figuring out what I wanted to put on this podcast today. And finally, I decided I wanted to go back to an incident that was found in 1 Samuel chapter 4 through chapter 6. And I've entitled this God in a Box. In 1 Samuel 4, Israel is fighting their arch enemies, the Philistines. We think Philistines is a derogatory term for someone uncultured or uncouth. But really, the Philistines were advanced, particularly in the area of metalworking. They had mastered this new technology and kept it a secret from everyone else, including the Israelites. This meant, in combat, the Philistines used swords and spears, while Israel used primitive weapons made of stone and wood. It's like the Philistines had weapons of mass destruction. They trounced the Israelites in battle. 1 Samuel 4.2 and the New Living Translation says the Philistines attacked and defeated the army of Israel, killing 4,000 men. When the battle was over, the surviving Israelites gathered to debrief. The question on everyone's mind was, what happened? Why? Why did this happen to us? 1 Samuel 4.3 says, After the battle was over, the troops retreated to their camp, and the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord allow us to be defeated by the Philistines? Then they said, Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh. It will, if we carry it into battle with us, it will save us from our enemies. Someone remembered their secret weapon, the Ark of the Covenant. 1 Samuel 4, 4 and 5 says, So they sent men to Shiloh to bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Heaven's armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim Hophni and Phinehas. The sons of Eli were also there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When all the Israelites saw the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord coming into their camp, they, they, their shout of joy was so loud it made the ground shake. As they prepared for their next battle, they brought the ark with them. The ark of the covenant was a box of acacia wood overlaid with gold, and it held the tablets with the Ten Commandments on them, a bowl of manna, and Aaron's rod that had budded. On top were angels, and the Israelites believed God literally sat enthroned on those two angels. This was the manifest presence of God. 1 Samuel 4, 5 says, When all the Israelites saw the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord coming into camp, their shout of joy was so loud it made the ground shake. They knew they were going to win. So what if the Philistines had iron? Israel had the Ark of the Covenant. Their rationale was, Okay, God, your honor is at stake now. If we lose this time, people won't just think about Israel as losers. They'll think Israel's God is a loser too. You don't want the Philistines to think their God is greater than you, so you have to make us win now. They know they can't lose, right? Unbelievable. The Israel's lost. In fact, they lost big. Their loss was so catastrophic that one man ran back to Shiloh with his clothes torn, his face dirty, to report it to Eli the high priest, uh, the old priest, I'm sorry. 1 Samuel 4:12 says, A man from the tribe of Benjamin ran from the battlefield and arrived at Shiloh later that same day. He had torn his clothes and put dust on his head to show his grief. 
Well, Eli was blind, so he couldn't see the man's sorry state, but he was given four pieces of information that went from bad to worse. First, the battle was so bad we had to run away. Second, before we could run, we suffered heavy losses. Third, both your sons were killed. And four, they got the ark. It says in Samuel, 1 Samuel 4, 13 through 18, Eli, Eli was waiting beside the road to hear the news of the battle, for his heart trembled for the safety of the ark of God. When the messenger arrived and told what had happened, an outcry resounded throughout the town. What is that noise about, Eli asked. The messenger rushed over to Eli, who was 98 years old and blind. He said to Eli, I have just come from the battlefield. I was there this very day. What happened, my son? Eli demanded. Israel has been defeated by the Philistines, the messenger replied. The people have been slaughtered, and your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were also killed, and the ark of God has been captured. Well, when the messenger mentioned that, that what had happened to the ark of God, Eli fell backward from his seat beside the gate. He broke his neck and died, for he was old and overweight. He had been Israel's judge for 40 years. The news so shocked fat Eli that he fell backwards off the wall where he sat and broke his neck, the wall where he sat, and he broke his neck and he died. His daughter-in-law heard the terrible news and went into premature labor. Her death was imminent. In 1 Samuel 4, 19-22, says Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near her time of delivery. When she heard that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth. She died in childbirth, but before she passed away, the midwives tried to encourage her. Don't be afraid, they said. You have a baby boy. But she did not answer or pay attention to them. She named the child Ichabod, which means, Where is the glory? For she said, Israel's glory is gone. She named him this because the Ark of the Covenant had been captured and because her father-in-law and husband were dead. Then she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the Ark of God has been captured. Well, now the midwives tried to encourage her, saying there's still hope because she was having a son. She told the midwife to name the boy Ichabod because the glory of God had departed from Israel. That's what Ichabod means, the glory has departed. Ichabod is a negative form of kabod, the most important word in this story. Uh, kabod means weighty or heavy. Figuratively, it means glory. Kabod was everything majestic where kabod was present. There was dignity, meaning purpose and hope. Now that was all gone. The child's name would serve as a reminder. The, the glory of God had departed. To lose the ark was much worse than just losing a battle. It wasn't about just losing a religious relic or object of historical interest. The ark was where God sat to reign over his people. With the ark gone, God was gone. This meant God either couldn't hear, didn't care, or wouldn't help. So had this whole God thing been just a lie? Was Abraham just out looking at the stars talking to himself and thought God had talked to him? 
Did Moses really see a burning bush? Were these all just fairy tales and the ark was just a box? Have we lived horrible lives and now we're all destined to die on the same day? So as to not disillusion this little son of mine from day the day he is born, he'll grow up an orphan and every time someone says his name, it will remind him and everybody else that the glory is gone. That's the reality. Ichabod. God let the Philistines drag his ark from Ebenezer to Ashdod. He let them mock and taunt him. He couldn't save his own people. He couldn't even save himself. That won't be the last time something like this happens. What God does next is crazy. He allowed himself to be captured. 1 Samuel 5, 1 and 2 says, After the Philistines captured the ark of God, they took it from the battleground of Ebenezer to the town of Ashdod. They carried the ark of God into the temple of Dagon and placed it beside an idol of Dagon. Unlike any other god, Yahweh took on the suffering, loss, pain, embarrassment, and humiliation of his people. He carried their shame on his back. What kind of God would do such a thing? What was God going to do now? The Philistines took the ark to the temple of their god, Dagon, just an idol. They believed Dagon had triumphed over Yahweh, so they put the ark at the feet of this statue of Dagon. They had a big feast. They chanted all their favorite chants. They told war stories, and then they went home. And that night, something happened. It says in 1 Samuel 5, 3, But when the citizens of Ashdod went to see it the next morning, Dagon had fallen with his face to the ground in front of the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him in his place again. When the priests came the next morning, they found their god Dagon had fallen on his face before the ark of Yahweh. Was it an accident? Was it a coincidence? It looked like Dagon was bowing down to worship the god of Israel. Well, that wasn't good when you're a priest of Dagon. Imagine having to prop your god up. But they dusted him off, propped him up, and held another all-day celebration. Once again, night came, and with the lights out, Yahweh is left alone with Dagon. 1 Samuel 5, 4. But the next morning, the same thing happened. Dagon had fallen down before the ark of the Lord again. This time, his head and hands were broken off and were lying in the doorway. Only the trunk of his body was left intact. How surprised the priest must have been the next morning. They made the same discovery. This time, Dagon's head and hands were severed and laid neatly across the threshold of the temple. The rest of Dagon was bowing down to Yahweh. The play-by-play -play details of what took place remain a mystery, but we know this, that over the course of three days, there, there was a lot of things to be learned. The first day was a dark day for Israel. It looked like God was defeated. The glory was gone. Heaven was silent. No one knew why. Some days are like that. The second day was the day of hidden combat, and it was shrouded in mystery. It was a day of distress and anxiety. Some days are like that, too. But the third day was the Lord's day. 
On the third day, God does some of his best work at night. Remember that when you feel everything is dark and foreboding, God is still there and God is still working. On the third day, joy comes in the morning. On the third day, stones get rolled away, idols get disarmed, and people are filled with awe and wonder. Remember, it might seem like God is defeated on Friday, but Sunday is coming. The Philistines in Ashdod were afflicted by a plague that's kind of unseemly. A little bit embarrassing, really. God plagued them with rats and bubonic plague, which causes bleeding hemorrhoids. Some say it was tumors. Others say it was mice. The Hebrew words are similar, but some of the older translations are less afraid or ashamed to say it was hemorrhoids. Yes, God struck them with hemorrhoids. The Bible actually says they had hemorrhoids in their secret parts. Listen to 1 Kings 5, 9. And it was so that after they had carried it about, the hand of the Lord was against the city with a great destruction. And he smote the men of the city, both small and great, with, uh, and they had emrods in, in their secret parts. Now, emrods was an a ancient word that meant hemorrhoids. Secret parts is the usual location for hemorrhoids, right? Well, notice the iron here. People who know how to work with iron need a soft place to sit. God sure has a sense of humor as far as I'm concerned. In God's presence, we are all embarrassingly human, and no amount of iron swords or spears will help when what is needed most is a donut pillow. The Ashdod Town Council called a town meeting and decided maybe having the ark in the city wasn't all they thought it was going to be. Maybe someone else should have a turn at mocking the ark. They voted to send it to Gath. It wasn't long before everyone in Gath was looking for a soft place to sit, too. The people of Gath decided they didn't want to be selfish either, so they'd let the people of Ekron have a turn with the ark. But the Ekron people wouldn't even let it in their gates. Apparently, word had spread quickly about the problem. All the Philistine city leaders came together to figure out how to handle this delicate situation. They decided to just send the ark back to Israel. We can't handle it. Let them have it. They called their priests together to ask how to do this. The priests recommended to appease this Yahweh God with a bribe. What did they recommend? Five golden hemorrhoids and five golden mice. First Samuel 6, 2 through 5, And the Philistines called all the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do to the ark of the Lord? Tell us wherewith we shall send it to his place. And they said, If ye send away the ark of God of Israel, send it not empty, but in any wise return him a trespass offering. Then he shall, we shall be healed, and it shall be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Then they said, What shall the trespass offering which we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden emrods, or hemorrhoids, and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For one plague was on you all and on your lords. Wherefore ye shall make images of your emrods and images of your mice, 
that mar the land, and ye shall give glory unto the God of Israel. Peradventure he will lighten his hand from off you, and from off your gods, and from off your land. Now it's interesting to see that the priests knew about how God had delivered Israel from Egypt and the Pharaoh. It says in 1 Samuel 6, 6, Don't be stubborn, rebellious as Pharaoh and the Egyptians were. By the time God has finished with them, they were eager to let Israel go. Just to be sure this wasn't all a big coincidence, they came up with an ingenious plan. Get two milk cows, still nursing calves, and ha that have never been yoked up before, and hitch them to a cart. They took their calves away from the cows and pinned them up. They loaded the ark on the cart with uh, golden objects and just let it go. They figured it would take a miracle for two cows to abandon their calves and know how to pull a cart all the way back to Israel. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 6:12, and sure enough, without veering off to their other directions, the cows went straight along the road toward Beth Shemesh, slowing as, or lowing as they went. The Philistine rulers followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. This crazy story has a lot of content and many deep theological truths we could check out. But to be honest, all I can think about is what a golden hemorrhoid must look like. Well, moving right along. To begin gleaning the lessons, the Israelites got off track when their thinking shifted about how, glori how glorious God is to how useful God might be. They stopped thinking about how God deserved honor and worship and started seeing him as someone who could be manipulated into doing what they wanted. They thought they had a God in a box. Turns out he doesn't stay there or anyone else's neat little box. God refuses to be manipulated and he can't be controlled. He does the unexpected and he goes where he wants. God is described in many ways, but tame isn't one of them. This time, he lets himself be taken uh, captive and made fun of. He disarms false gods, he humbles the proud, and he uses milk cows to get his work done. Later, the glory of God came to earth, not in a box, but in a human body. He saw his glory, one of his friends wrote, but... Uh, but he didn't match our expectations. Let me say that again. We saw his glory, one of his friends wrote, but we, he didn't match our expectations. He had no money, no title, no power, and no army. And we, he was taken captive. He was paraded through the streets, be mocked and taunted. The people shouted, Luke 23, 35 through 37, the crowd watched and the leader scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself if he is really God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And Jesus took the name Ichabod as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He died. His body was put in another container, sealed with a stone, and on the third day, we discover once again we serve a God who does some of his best work at night when no one is around. A God perfectly capable of finding a way to get himself free. 
a God who won't stay in the confinements we make for him. Don't try to keep God in your box. One thing more, the cows were lowing as they went, mooing as they brought God back to his people. The significance I see there is remembering when Jesus had a prayed with, uh, with him as they followed him as he entered Jerusalem. People were shouting and singing and the religious leaders tried to get Jesus to make them stop. And Jesus said, if these people don't shout, the rocks will. Maybe the cows knew if they didn't move, moo, the stones would cry out. You know, when God comes back to his people, someone or something has to make some noise. I think it's about time we get excited because we serve such a mighty, wonderful God. God is so awesome, and I want you to know, whatever you're going through today, God is there, and God will help you with whatever situation, if you will let him do it. He does want you to accept him as your personal Savior because there's a hell waiting out there for those who do not accept Jesus Christ. So won't you confess your sins to him, ask him to, to come into your life, tell him that you're repenting of the things you've done, you want to turn your life around and serve him, and then you can know him as your personal Savior and your Lord. I'm praying you'll do that. Father, thank you so much for the privilege we have of reading your word. Sometimes we see things, Lord, that just kind of make us chuckle because we realize you're not only an awesome, serious God, but you have a sense of humor too. And I would ask God that you'll help us that we might get to know you better, that you'll draw us closer, you'll increase our love for you because you love us so much. We'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember, if you want to get in touch with me, my, my uh, email address, lowercase r-e-v-w-m-w-w-o-o-d-s at gmail.com. My mailing address is box 4031, Sun Valley, Arizona, 86029. God bless you. I hope that you're having a good day, and I want to talk to you again next week. Amen.